This morning, though, I want to turn our attention to the most critical question that anyone can face, the question that we'll all have to answer. In Matthew 16, it follows on where Jesus had a time of healing people and doing miracles, and the Pharisees uh, were asking him questions. And unfortunately, when it got to the hard issues, people deserted. Many of his disciples deserted him. In Matthew 16, Jesus confronted the 12 who'd remained with him. And he said to them in verse 13, who do men say that I am? And of course, they answered, some say, you know, John the Baptist or Elias or some other prophet. And what did Jesus do? He turned to them and he said, but whom do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, that famous confession, you are the son of God, the living God. And you see, that's the question that we all have to answer. The Bible makes it clear that one day we will all have to stand before God and answer that question. Who is Jesus Christ? What did you do with my son? And you know, when it comes to this issue of is Genesis real history, the creation and flood accounts, for example, I like to turn people to John chapter 1 because John chapter 1 tells us so much about who Jesus is and uh, it helps explain and resolve the issue of origins. Well, let's turn to John chapter 1 this morning. In your Bibles, open your Bibles. Uh, I like to hear the rustling of Bibles because that means people are well used and and they they study them. And uh, let's read. I'm going to read the first 14 14, uh, verses of chapter 1 of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was the life and the life was the light of men. As the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did did not comprehend it, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man who comes into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, it's clear here in John chapter 1, where does John begin? He begins by introducing Jesus as the creator. In the beginning was the word, and the Greek word there, I'm no Greek scholar, but they tell me the word there is logos. 
the word, the logos, the communication. And uh, we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 1 about the same issue, the logos, the word. In Hebrews chapter 1, again, the writer of the Hebrews begins in verses 1 through 3, God, who at various times and in many ways spoke to us in time past by the prophets, has in these last days spoken the word, the logos, by his son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. There in John chapter 1 and here in Hebrews chapter 1, God answers for us the question, who is Jesus Christ? He is none other than the creator, the one who made everything. And the Paul in Colossians chapter 1 makes that also very clear. Verses 15 to 17, we read, he is the, speaking of Jesus, he is the invisible, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And so this morning, our first point to remember is that Jesus is introduced to us unashamedly, without apology, as the creator, as the creator. And while he was here, he took on human flesh, he lived among us, he came to show us what God is like. He said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. The I and the Father are one. He never ceased to be the creator. As he said, the works in John chapter 5, verse 36, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he said, I and my Father are one, verse 38, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Yes, the Word became flesh. Jesus was fully human. He experienced weariness. He fell asleep on a boat because he was tired. He suffered pain. Isn't that marvellous to know that when we face the trials of life, Jesus, our Saviour, the God-man who came, suffered and knows what it likes to be weary. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And yet he, he was tested, but without sin. And the Gospel records make it very clear who Jesus was as the Creator. As I said, he never ceased to be God the Son. Yes, he left his heavenly glory, but he veiled that glory in his human flesh, but he never ceased to have the power as a creator. How does I know that? Because he demonstrated his power as the creator in his earthly ministry by the miracles that he did, by the miracles he did. Let's remind ourselves of some of those miracles this morning. First of all, he had power over nature. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus got in the boat and it was one of those occasions. He had a long day. He was tired. He fell asleep. And uh, remember that Peter, James and John 
Peter, Andrew, James and John were hardened fishermen. They knew the Sea of Galilee. And while they were going across the sea, a raging storm came up. And these men who knew the Sea of Galilee were in fear of their life. They've never seen a raging storm like this. And what happened? They shook, Master, wake up, we're going to perish. And what was Jesus' response? He stood up in the boat and with a word, it took millions of years to be there a great calm. No, we read instantly there was a great calm. A raging storm turned into a mill pond, mill pond with just a word from Jesus. What was the disciples' response? Ho hum, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, big deal. No, they fell flat on their faces and worshipped him because they said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, of course the wind and the waves obeyed him because he created them. And notice it was a word. What do we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3? And God said, let there be light. And instantly there was light. You see, we can solve the issue in Genesis chapter 1 by remembering the miracles that Jesus did. He instantly stilled that storm. So with a word, the Logos, God said, let there be light. The Logos, the Creator, everything was created through. You you read Genesis chapter 1, and God said, and God said, and God said. The Logos, Jesus, the agent of creation, is there in Genesis chapter 1. God spoke. And instantly things happen. See, that's why I have no doubt about Genesis chapter 1. Because Jesus demonstrated with his miracles. You remember in another storm, we read in John chapter 6, he walked on water. Have you tried walking on water lately? But Jesus could walk on water because he created gravity, therefore he could defy gravity. Everything Even when he walked on this earth, everything was at his command. And he could could suspend the normal laws of the universe, operation of the universe, which he put in place. He could suspend them to do the miracles that he did. So he had power over nature. But he also had power to create. We read in John chapter 2 of his first miracle at the wedding feast of Cana. What happened? They ran out of wine. And so Mary came to Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He got the servants to fill the water pots and instantly the water turned into wine. It was a miracle of creation. You and I know that water is hydrogen and oxygen atoms combined. But wine is a complex organic molecule. You see, we forget when we read that account that it was a miracle. A miracle. And what happened in in, uh, Matthew 4 and Matthew 15? Mark also records these two miracles. On two separate occasions, Jesus fed thousands of men plus women and children, 5,000 and 4,000 on two different occasions. What did he do? He broke bread and he broke fish And thousands of people were fed from five loaves and two fishes and they collected 12 basketfuls of scraps afterwards at the feeding of the 5,000. That was a miracle of creation. Jesus didn't have to go out and grow wheat and crush it to flour and bake it in the oven. 
He did all that instantly. And you see, people look at Genesis chapter 1 and they doubt that God could do those things, speak, and it happens instantly. Well, we have here Jesus' example. He was demonstrating his power as the creator here on earth. Then we notice that he also had power over life. In John chapter 9, we read he, he healed a man born blind. I emphasise the word born. Why? Born blind. He'd never seen people. He'd never seen trees. He'd never seen windows and doors. Now, you and I, when we're born, you know, as we start to observe the world around us and our parents teach us, uh, we, you know, you point to things and they tell us the word for it. We learn to recognise, well, that's a door and that's a window, that's a person, that's a tree. Our brain stores up those information because we learn it. But this man was born blind. He never had any of that. And what did we read? That Jesus healed him. And not only did he heal God his eyes, but the man could recognise what he see, what he saw. Only the creator of brains and eyes could do that. And then we read about Jairus' daughter. Oh, don't trouble yourself, master, she's died. No, what did Jesus do? He came in and he raised her from the dead. Indeed, the most powerful example was with Lazarus in John chapter 11. By the way, notice that Jesus deliberately delayed going to Bethany. He knew Lazarus had died, but by the time he got there, it was four days after Lazarus had died. And and Martha and Mary said to him, Lord, his body stinks. You see, Jesus wanted to demonstrate the power of God so that they would believe that he's the resurrection and the life. And so he wanted everyone to know that Lazarus was dead, 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 dead. He wasn't asleep in the grave. He was dead, dead, dead. His body was stinking. And what happened? With a word, Lazarus come forth. Lazarus came forth. He demonstrated his power over life. By the way, what was the Jewish leader's response? sort of reflects what we see today. They wanted to get rid of Lazarus because they wanted to get rid of the evidence. Rather than believe who Jesus was and claimed to be, they wanted to get rid of the evidence. You know, they don't want to believe about the creator, the creation or the flood. They ignore the evidence. They're willingly ignorant. They deliberately reject it. Why? Because it's not a scientific issue. As I said in the Sunday school hour, it's a spiritual issue. And uh, we need to remember that. We're not trying to win a scientific argument, but the Holy Spirit can use our scientific arguments because they need to be spiritually convicted. Well, that leads to the next issue. Jesus also had power over demons. You see, he controls the spiritual world. That's why when we witness to people, We aren't doing the converting. It's the Holy Spirit that does the converting. We have no power to change people's hearts and minds. But I tell you what, what a privilege we have that God has given us the responsibility of telling them what we believe and why, prayerfully knowing that the Holy Spirit can convict and convince and convert. 
And Jesus demonstrated his power over the spiritual world by casting out demons. He cast out demons. So the first point, therefore, under the evidence that Jesus is the creator is that he demonstrated his power by the miracles that he did. But that also means that Jesus, as the creator, when he walked this earth, always spoke the truth. Always. Because he is the truth. That's what John 14 tells us, doesn't it? Jesus said, verse 5 and 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You realise that if Jesus ever uttered a lie, he can't be the truth and therefore he can't be the way and he can't be the life. This is serious. This is what disturbs me about some of my some of those who claim to be Christians who have compromised with regard to what God's word tells us. They believe in things that Jesus never said. They, in fact, call Jesus a liar, which we'll come to in a moment. See, John 14, verses 10 and 11, Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father in the Father who dwells in me does the works. In John 3, 12, Notice four verses before John 3.16, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how you will believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then four verses later, he tells them heavenly things. He said, Nicodemus, if you don't believe the earthly things I tell you, how are you going to believe the heavenly things? And in John chapter 5, Verses 46 and 47. By the way, read that passage and, and reflect on it. The, the, he was speaking to the Pharisees who knew the Scriptures back, backwards and frontwards. You know what he said to them? Haven't you read? Jesus was very sarcastic at times. <laughs> he called the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchres. Whoa. By the way, he can do that. We can't. But what did he say? For if ye believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What did Moses write about? He wrote about creation, the flood, the Tower of Babel. If you don't believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe my words? And in fact, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, quoted from Genesis 1 through 11. He referred to it as real, literal history. And you see, that's the issue I have with many Christians who compromise. If they, they're saying that Adam wasn't a real person, they're calling Jesus Christ a liar. I have to answer to God for everything I say and do. And I quake in my boots when I hear, hear uh, biblical scholars make statements like that. In Mark 13, verse 19, Jesus refers to the creation that God created. Jesus believed that God created. And in Mark 10, 16, uh, 6 to 19, uh, Mark 6 to 9, and Matthew 19, 4 to 6, Jesus spoke from the beginning of the creation. God made them male and female. Notice that, two genders, male and female. Not he, she, it, they, them and all the rest of them? No, 
From the beginning of the creation, God created or made man and female. And by the way, when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, Jesus quotes not only that Jesus created the, uh, that God created the male and female, yes, Jesus, because it says there, let us make man in our image. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son were all present there. The Spirit of God had hovered on the face of the waters. God spoke. Jesus was there, the Logos. In the beginning, God the Father. So they're all there. Let us make man in our image. Male and female created them. What do we read after Adam was, Eve was brought to Adam? Wow, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. Therefore, as Jesus quoted, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they will be one flesh. He quoted in uh, Matthew from both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 in the same breath, so they're not contradictory accounts, they're complementary. Genesis 1 is a chronological account. Genesis 2 zeroes in on certain details, not in a chronological fashion, but to explain certain details that are missing in Genesis chapter 1. And so Jesus was affirming the literal historical basis of marriage, one man for one woman for life, end of argument. So Jesus affirmed what we believe about gender and marriage. Matthew 23, verses 34 and 35, Jesus referred to Abel, uh, Abel, Adam's son, as a real historical person. In Matthew 24, verses 30, verse 37, and in Luke 17, 26, Jesus spoke of the days of Noah. Jesus believed there's a real literal person that was a historical period, a real period. So you and I should believe that. If Jesus is the truth, then we should believe that. And he went on to say, Noah entered the ark and the flood came and took them all away. Not some, all. Not just all the people that lived in the Mesopotamian area. No, all. All. And notice the context. Go and look at the context in Matthew 24 and Luke 17. The disciples had come to Jesus and they were asking a question about the end of time. What will be the sign of your coming? And what do you say? As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it become, be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. He was comparing his second coming to the flood. Is Jesus' second coming going to be global? I hope so. That means he was comparing the flood. The flood had to be global. By the way, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 goes a step further. He heard Jesus' words. What does he say in his second letter, chapter 3? He says, the world that then was being overflowed with water. He compares uh, the, 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 the earth standing out of the water and in the water, referring to creation on day three. He refers to the world that perished the flood. And he says, the world that now exists is stored, restored, is stored up to fire against the day of judgment. He compares the second coming in the creation with the flood. So they all had to be global. No question about it. So... We've already learnt, therefore, that Jesus is the creator, none other than the creator. And it it, uh, his power and his word confirms what we read in Genesis chapter 1. Well, our second point that we come to is this. Jesus' power and word always outrank man's finite 
fallible reasoning. Listen carefully here. Let's go back to John chapter 2 and that marriage feast in Cana. And what happened? As I said before, they ran out of wine. And that was a terrible thing in those days. It was the responsibility of the bridegroom and it was embarrassing if you ran out of wine. And uh, Jesus, what did he do? He told the servants to fill the water pots and they were huge pots. They weren't just small little things. They were huge pots, gallons worth. And uh, the water was instantly turning to wine. Well, what did Jesus do? He told the disciples, oh, by the way, what do we read in, in Genesis chapter 1? We read that on the third day, God made the plants. Did he planted seeds? No. We read he created fruit trees already bearing fruit. Why? Well, there was a need. He knew that in three days' time, Adam and Eve would, would need food to eat, so he created the fruit as well as the trees. If he only planted seeds, Adam and Eve would have starved to death. You see, when God does something, he does it, he provides lavishly. And so Jesus didn't go out and, and tell them to get grapes and crush them and har- harvest them and crush them and ferment them and all the rest of it. No, he instantly turned water into wine because there was a need. And he, he looked after that need instantly. Well, what did he do? He told the, the servants to take a sample of it and take it to the master of the feast. And we read, what did he do? The master of the feast tasted it and he was, wow, this is great stuff. And uh, his comments indicated that, of course, the obvious thing to, to think using his human reasoning was this wine that he was now tasting that was so great, it must have grown beautifully on vines with lovely grapes that were harvested and crushed. And, 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 and it, was, it must have been allowed a lot of time to mature. So he assumed that there was a long process that happened. His human reasoning, and that's what human reasoning does. It looks around the world around us and interprets everything based on our experience today. Was he wrong in doing that? Well, yes and no. Yes, because that's the normal experience, but no, because Jesus had created mature, ready to drink wine to meet a need. And I want you to notice that wine did not have an apparent history. I hate the term appearance of age. People say to me, oh, but, but, but God created the creation with an appearance of age. No, rocks don't come with labels on them saying, hi, I'm millions of years old. We interpret what we see and we impose the age on it. You see, he saw that wine and he thought, oh, it must be old. But he got it wrong. He only used his human reasoning. And people say to me, oh, but isn't God deceiving us by making a world that looks old? No, it's not old. He's told us when he created it, how he created it. He's told us how old it is and we're going to talk about that tonight. So Jesus didn't do it, deceive anyone on this miracle because he did it in front of eyewitnesses. The servants and the disciples saw the miracle. 
And Jesus even sent the servants to the master of the feast. You know, similarly, Jesus didn't deceive anyone when he broke the bread and broke the fish to feed thousands of people because he did that miracle in front of eyewitnesses, his disciples. And the interesting thing, of course, is the bread and fish tasted exactly the same as the original because as a creator, he'd do all that. He didn't deceive anyone. He did it openly in front of eyewitnesses. But you see, what happened at this marriage feast? The master of the feast asked the wrong person the wrong question. What do we read? He called the bridegroom over and said, some people keep the, you know, feed the, feed us the good wine first and then give us the bad stuff later. But you've kept the best wine to last. He talked to the wrong person. He should have asked the eyewitnesses, the servants, because they would have told him that man over there told us to fill the water pots and instantly it turned into wine. See, that's the problem with most scientists. They depend only on their human reasoning and they ignore God's word. And that's the tragedy with many Christians who have compromised. They're putting man's word above God's word. They're using their human reasoning and trying to make God fit into our human reasoning. He doesn't do that. God tells us what he did and, and Genesis is his eyewitness account and we, he expects us to believe it because he, he attested to it by what Jesus did. You see what point I'm making? Jesus confirmed Genesis 1 by what he did on the earth. That's why we should be in no doubt that Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is God's eyewitness account. He was there and he's told us what happened. I don't know how, how God created the light on day four, but, but God is God. I can't explain how Jesus created more bread and more fish or turned water into wine. I don't have to. I just have to accept by faith that he is the creator of all things that he can do all that because he demonstrated it. You see, Job had a problem. He was trying to understand why he was suffering. And what did God say to Job in chapter 38? Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. God was being sarcastic, of course. And then God showed Job all these different things. You know this, Job, you know that, you know this, you know that, you know this, you know that. And what did Job do at the end of that, all that revelation? Job chapter 42, verses two to nine, two to six. I know you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this that hides counsel with, without knowledge? Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, we need to be careful that we're not arguing with God. Let's accept God's word as true from the very beginning. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9, what do we read? Woe to him who strives with his maker. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? God has given us and made us who we are. Let's rejoice in who we are. 
not question God for doing, 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 making us wrongly. Not at all. Not at all. He knows each one of us even before we were born. We were knit together in our mother's womb. Well, our third and final point this morning, we've heard that Jesus demonstrated that he was the creator and is the creator by what he did and what he spoke as the truth. We've learnt that his power and his word outrank finite, fallible, finite man. He's God's word, the logos, and he outranks man's word, finite, fallible man's word. But third and finally, and supremely the pinnacle is this. Jesus derives his power as our saviour because he is the creator. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that you have to believe in Genesis, literally, to be saved. No, 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 no. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 assures us, there is, nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among them by which we must be saved. And in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, yes, we're saved through Jesus, but who is Jesus? How could he possibly save us? If he was just a man, how could he save us? Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death, death spread to all men because all sin. But the answer, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, 15, verses 21 and 22. For since by death, by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And he says in verse 14, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also in vain. You see, Adam had to be a real person. Why did God go to the trouble of, 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 of talking about all those people that lived and lied and lived and died in Genesis chapter 10 and, 10 and 11, uh, 5 and 10 and 11? It's because that is Jesus' family tree. They have to be real literal people. That's why Paul could talk about Jesus as the second or last Adam because he was descended from the first one. Adam failed in the Garden of Eden when he sinned. Jesus, the last Adam, was victorious over temptation. Was victorious. He was sinless and he could take the death penalty. In fact, well, I want you to think about it for a moment. Now, it overwhelms me to talk about this. We see, we read up here, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Think about that. The creator of the universe came to die for you and for me. What manner of man is this? How, how much God has demonstrated his love that he died for each one of us, for you, for me, the creator of the universe. Isn't that incredible? And you know what? He had to be the infinite creator 
to die for all people in all time throughout all places. That's why we know all our sins were nailed to that tree. That's why all our sins have been dealt with because as the infinite creator, he has the power to take in his, in his body all our sins. They were laid on him when he was nailed to that tree. But you know, the glorious thing is that that wasn't the end of the story. Because he was the creator, no man could take his life. He laid it down willingly. And because he had power over life, he had power to rise from the dead. And because he lives, it's our guarantee that we will live also. Isn't that a wonderful message? The creator, Jesus Christ, died for each one, demonstrating God's love to us. And he can offer us eternal life. Because he, he, he rose from the dead victorious. Therefore, we can be confident that one day we will live with him in eternity. So you see, the power of the gospel depends on the power of Jesus as the creator. You know, this morning, let me challenge you. Do you really believe that Jesus is the creator? Because you see, it changes how you live. You know, I often hear people say, oh, but God knows everything. And he does. Do you realise that he knows every thought we ever have? We think we can hide things from God, but he sees everything. Isn't that sobering? He's watching. He knows. Nothing is hidden from him. But we worship a wonderful saviour because when we're tempted, we can go to him for forgiveness and we know that our, all our sins are forgiven. And that's why believing that he has the power as the creator when he died on the cross for all our sins, past, present and future, that it changes how we live and it changes how we pray. Because you see, we can pray knowing that he will answer, not according to our wishes, but according to his perfect good character for what we, he knows we need. You know, I had an episode in my life some years ago, and I don't have time to go into the story, but it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. Something happened that was very, de- I thought my time in creation ministry was over, end. But you know, I can look back at that, what happened in Australia back in 1998. I wouldn't be standing here this morning if it wasn't because that happened. Even the bad things, God uses for good. When it says that all things, in everything, God works together for good for them who are called according to his purpose, believe it, even the bad things. So if you're suffering this morning, you know, some people are watching over the live stream because they can't get here. They're suffering. And it's difficult. But remember, our Saviour suffered as well. He was tested in all. And he's using your suffering for his good purposes. You may not see the answers in this life, but I tell you what, because he lives, it's our guarantee that we will live for eternity without sin, suffering, disease or death. It'll be a wonderful time. But you see, friends, we all, we all must one day stand to answer this question, who is Jesus Christ? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 reminds us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, 
whether good or bad. Remember, the books will be open. Everything's been recorded. It even tells, tells us even our tears God has bottled up. I said to someone recently who was grieving, just remember Jesus wept. If you're weeping at the loss of a loved one, Jesus understands because he wept at the graveside of Lazarus. But of course, he conquered death. So friends, this morning, let me challenge you as we close. Are you putting man's word based on finite, fallible, sinful human reasoning above God's word? You know, sadly, many operate in the day-to-day world without trusting God's word as true from the very beginning. Truth is not determined by majority vote. What did Jesus say? You know, people often say to me, but how can the majority of scientists be wrong? Well, they are, because Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. We may be in the minority at times, but that's the way God does things. He thwarts the plans of men and uses the humble and the obedient to achieve his purposes. So truth is not determined by majority. We must trust God's word from the beginning. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 109 verses, verse 160. Your word is true from the beginning. The entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. What does Timothy say in chapter 3, verses 2 and 5? For men will be lovers of themselves, having a form or appearance of godliness, but denying its power. You know, friends, we see that in our culture around us. We see the death and the decay, the moral depravity that's creeping and creeping and creeping. What does Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17? Do we go out there and try to change America politically? What does Paul Peter say? For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Why? Because if God's people don't believe God's word, how can we preach it, preach it to an unbelieving world? Friends, the answer to each situation in America, Australia, and the Western culture, the church. God needs to start in judging the church, and he is. And we need to get real with God and trust his word because when we trust his word and live according to his word, the Holy Spirit can come in revival. And if the church is revived, it will change the culture. It's God's word that must be front and central. Do you trust God's word? But do you believe that Jesus is the creator? Let me challenge you this morning to believe God's word from the very beginning. Trust and obey. It will change your life. It will change your prayer life. It will change the way you live when you trust Jesus and take him as his word as the creator of all things.